Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Well, I did it. I managed to find time to finish Joe Hill's The Fireman. And I'll tell you, I enjoyed it. It's a very well-crafted read, and I can see exactly why it managed to find itself on last year's Goodreads Reader's Choice finalist for horror. Joe Hill's dad, Stephen King, makes use of direct literary music and movie references. Joe continues in that tradition, and right as I was thinking about how this book feels ever so slightly like McCarthy's The Road, his character mentions the work by name. If Cormac McCarthy took the burnt-up world of post-apocalyptia to 11, this finds itself somewhere around, I'll say, 6. I mean, don't get me wrong, the book is filled up with human beings burning alive and charred corpses, but it doesn't weigh down the reader's soul constantly. You can read it before bed without wondering how bad things would have to get before you start cannibalizing hapless strangers. Pick it up from a Barnes & Noble or your local library. Give it a go. I think that I'm going to take a break from horror for my next two books. The most recent Expanse series book came out in December, and the show on sci-fi is back on, so that might do it. Or my mother-in-law gave me Vitold Rybczynski's Last Harvest, which seems to be a history of American real estate development. Also, thank you, Vitold, for having a phonetic pronunciation of your name on your website. I look forward to your book. But... Enough about me. Let's hear some stories. We have three of them for you, so let's delay no longer. Les Bohem has written a lot of movies and TV shows, including 20 Bucks, Daylight, Dante's Peak, The Alamo, and the miniseries Taken, which he wrote and executive produced with Steven Spielberg, and for which he won an Emmy Award. He's had songs recorded by Emmylou Harris, 
Randy Travis, Freddie Fender, Stephen Gillette, Jeanette Napolito of Concrete Blonde, and Alvin of the Chipmunks. His short novel, Flight 505, was published last year by Upper Rubber Boot, and he is currently producing his series, Shut Eye, starring Jeffrey Donovan, Katie Strickland, Angus Sampson, and Isabella Rosalini for Hulu. His new album, Moved to Duduarte, came out last December on Jackrabbit Day Records to much critical acclaim and no sales whatsoever. Lend me your ears for Les Boehm's The Bad Place. I didn't do Bromo Dragonfly to find God, at least not the first time. In fact, I didn't even do it on purpose. I thought I was taking 2CB fly, and I did it to get laid. Bromo Dragonfly and its cousin 2CB fly are research chemicals, laboratory-developed psychedelics, new, generally untested outside of the lab, and even then only on some poor mice, maybe a cat or monkey. Stupid fucking thing to take. There are much more well-established and well-tested ways to go out of your mind. But Nadine Kamen wanted to try 2CB fly, and I wanted to get laid. And so I got two tickets to a Vampire Weekend concert, Nadine's favorite band, and scored two blotters of this newly manufactured drug from my friend Charlie, a chemistry major with a penchant for psychoactive compounds. Nadine and I dropped half an hour before the concert, the opening act was some electronica monstrosity and, apparently generous to their openers, Weekend gave them an hour and a half set, which meant Nadine and I were peaking before the VW hit the stage. Now, I should mention that while I don't share most of my friends' deep, almost psychological antipathy for Vampire Weekend, they are not in my pantheon of the greats. My tastes run more towards the mellow, the singer-songwriter. I like my shoegaze with acoustic guitars and maybe the mandolin or a fiddle. Old school, I know, but there you have it. And so, as the band opened with Diana Young, I found myself tripping balls and thinking, not about the deep and profound nature of the lyrics to their song, but about the shared nature of our reality. Let me say that again. The shared nature of our reality. It was one of those long, stoned, crazy trains of thought that border on the philosophical, teeter on the stupid, and make no sense the moment that you try to talk about them. Essentially, imagine you are watching a band on stage when you suddenly realize that the only reason that this band was on stage was that all the people in the audience had agreed to be watching a band on a stage. Wait, what? Exactly. As I said, it falls apart when you try to talk about it. But the point is not that I had a philosophical insight while tripping balls on a recently minted, highly under-tested psychedelic while watching a band I didn't like much in the hopes of falling into bed with the lovely Nadine Kamen, who, incidentally, had also taken three tens of molly and was drinking heavily from a bottle of Smirnoff she had stashed in her purse and who later told her friends that I was a low-tolerance pussy who couldn't handle what she described as a drug about as strong as non-alcoholic beer. 
Needless to say, I did not succeed in getting laid. I did, however, see something. Whether or not you want to call it God is more or less the point of this story. Reality dissolved. The band, thankfully for me at least, turned into the background track of a movie, and I found myself walking down a corridor. I was headed towards a dull, gray light. Not the light at the end of the tunnel that folks see in the near-death experiences recounted on so many of the New Age sites that I googled in the days after the first trip. This light was a dull gray and had the unhealthy glow of a sick room, not heaven. There was a tight, repetitive slapping that grew louder as I walked towards that sick light. As I got closer, I recognized it as the sound of the bouncing of one of those large playground balls. You know the ones. Rubber, bigger than a basketball, usually red. Closer still, and I could see, silhouetted against the light, a child, nine or ten years old. She was bouncing the ball morosely, her head turned away from me so that I couldn't see her face. She seemed to be looking deeper into the sad gray of that world that waited at the end of that endless corridor. There was something about her, in her body language, and how she was looking all the way into the gray that made her seem helpless and lost and that made me want to do whatever I could to protect her. I picked up my pace, but the hall seemed to elongate as I sped up so that I never got any closer to the little girl. Then she stopped bouncing the ball. She stood, holding it in both hands, seeing something just beyond the last glimmer of that gray light. Whatever she saw seemed to frighten her badly, and she started to back away from it. Then she turned and ran. The corridor forked ahead of her so that whatever she had seen was coming from one fork, and she could run away from both me and this unseen terror off into the darkness of her own. That's exactly what she did while I kept running towards the gray light. Then the red ball came rolling down the hall. I stooped to pick it up and rose to find that I was now enveloped in the awful light. It was dim, oppressive, giving no warmth or shelter or comfort. I stood there for what could have been a minute or a year, and then I started to shake. I closed my eyes, opened them, and found myself standing some fifty feet from the stage as Ezra Cohen launched the band into Unbelievers, Nadine's favorite song. Come on, she said. We've got to get closer. This is Godhead. But I had been somewhere far away, and I was starting to have a very different idea of what Godhead might turn out to be. Okay, so it was really weird. It was really scary. And then... It was over, and I was just a guy very high at a concert with a girl who didn't like me much and wasn't going to sleep with me no matter how hard I tried. The drug was extremely long-lasting, and I was high for almost two days, but I never went back to the hallway in the gray light. I did call my friend Charlie on the second day to say, Dude, what the fuck? Which is when he said, Oh, man, sorry, gave you the bromo dragon by mistake. My bad. It turned out to be his very, very bad indeed. I finally came down and spent the next few days googling those psychedelic experience near-death sites, reading a lot of stupid shit about the light. 
Then I put the trip away in some back corner of my memory where it didn't resurface until a few weeks later when I saw the Facebook pop-up. It was a targeted message to anyone who had seen the gray light, the long hall, and the little girl with the ball. Two days later, I was in Tacoma, Washington with nine other retrobrate losers, all of whom had taken Bromo-D, though we never really got down to whether the others had been looking to get laid or if some of them had more lofty intentions. We never really got down to it because the shit started to fly fast and furious almost the moment I got there. Bottom line? And try this on for weirdness before you go on any further. Nine people in all different parts of the country, all in totally different circumstances, but all high on the same drug, had all seen the exact same thing. The long corridor, the gray light, and the little girl bouncing the ball who got scared by something and then disappeared. Shared nature of our reality, sure, but this was really what-the-fuck territory. And why are we all here in Tacoma, Washington? Here's where I want you to meet Professor Laura Farnsworth. Dr. Farnsworth, Laura she preferred to be called, was a behavioral psychologist interested in finding neurochemical explanations for what Carl Jung had called the collective unconscious. That was what she had said on her website. But honestly, this was a woman who specialized in the mass hallucination, although I'm sure that she would have preferred to call it something a little more elegant than that. But, like that guy in the old commercials who told you he was not only the owner of the company, he was also his own best customer, as if we hadn't already noticed a dead skunk on his head. Laura had taken the drug herself, and she too had walked down the endless corridor towards the gray light and the little girl with the bouncing ball. It was Laura who had put the ad up on Facebook. If you really want to frighten yourself, by the way, stop reading this and Google Facebook's presentation to potential advertisers about targeted advertising. You are being profiled, my friends. I mean, sure, we all gave up our privacy long ago when we got our first Ralph's card, signing away reams of personal info to save three cents a roll on toilet paper. But what Facebook can do is still some awesomely invasive shit. Want to advertise to a select group of people who will have taken an obscure research chemical recreationally and illegally within the last three months? Want to also target the chemists who may have sold them said illegal drug? It's just a click away. Want to narrow it down to those with shaved pubic hair or a tattoo of a dolphin on the inner thigh? Just one more click. Cut up your credit cards. Disconnect from the internet. Go live in the woods. It won't help. The trees were wired to the Google server somewhere around 2009. Laura had also advertised in the few remaining print journals that dealt with the drug community and had found her way onto the dark web to advertise at sites generally reserved for drug dealers, gun runners, and angry, aspy teenagers who thought they were getting away with something when they discovered the wonders of the Silk Road. From all this she'd found us, her eight experiencers, fellow travelers into this particular dark quadrant of inner space. What was it in Laura's own experience that convinced her that she was part of something bigger? There were indicators that only a researcher in her particular field would have recognized. 
Gray light, for example, is a motif found in Hopi spirit dance and in the rituals of both early Vikings and several West African tribes. Before you think that this is the kind of shit that I know anything about, trust me when I tell you that I learned all of this as we sat around an abandoned encounter group space in what had formerly been a private mental hospital and rehab for wealthy Tacomans. Laura told us about the implications of our shared experience. You want to just stop here, look at those implications? We, all nine of us, took the drug and saw the exact same thing, which spoke to either an impossible collective coincidence or the equally impossible prospect that we had actually, however you want to quantum explain it, gone to an actual place where the collective unconscious lived. Laura said the gray light was one motif and that the endless corridors were the halls of a time-altered reality brought on by the psychoactive substance. But the kicker was the little girl who both leads and runs. Apparently, she is a diminished form of a trickster god. That is, a playful spirit who can serve as a provocateur, motivator, or guide. It appears everywhere and is often a source of humor, inspiration, and knowledge. Tricksters steal fire for man. Tricksters bring the knowledge of good and evil. He brings the knowledge of life and death. Something that you should keep in mind as I tell you the rest of the story. In most mythologies, he tends to go bad. And when Trickster goes bad, he goes very, very dark indeed. As for the other volunteers, experiencers, tripsters, take your pick and call us anything but late for acid. There were a couple of goth girls, Crow and Raven, who seemed so lost in their private language that they had little time or use for anyone else. This language consisted mostly of internet memes and endless band references. There was a point when we had to go around the room and describe our particular encounter. When I explained mine about my date and vampire weekend, Raven and Crow exchanged a glance so full of pity for my lameness that I knew that nothing I would ever say could make it go away. Although, whether or not two high school seniors thought I was a lame old man was about to be the least of my worries. No psychedelic drug research story would be complete without an old hippie. Ours was named Dan. In his late sixties, he used to run a light show for a guy who bought acid from a guy who knew the Grateful Dead. Encyclopedic knowledge of sixties psychedelic bands from Mint Tattoo to H.P. Lovecraft, they had a song called At the Mountains of Madness, all right? A life-riding motorcycles had left him with a bad knee and a worse attitude. He had a way of repeating the last thing anyone said as if it were the stupidest thing he'd ever heard. He had a beer drinker's gut, long, thinning gray hair barely covering up a permanently sunburned scalp, and a fading band of alternating peace signs and skulls tattooed around his wrist like a bracelet. For all that, a wicked grin and a disarming way of suddenly becoming charming and friendly just when you didn't think you could take any more of his ranting bleakness. We actually had two old hippies, and our bonus hippie was an incredible guy named Mark, a surfer turned nuclear physicist turned crazed adventurer of both outer and inner landscapes, a guy for whom taking an untested psychedelic drug or free-climbing half-dome were both options for a long Memorial Day weekend. 
Mark, now closing in on 75, went to Burning Man every year, wrote scholarly essays on the quantum universe, surfed every morning, mountain biked every afternoon, and was working on a fourth wife. On the other end of almost every curve we have Carol, a recovering meth addict who really hadn't done much to recover. She had bought the drug from a guy at a club. What she hadn't taken, she had left out while she fucked some guy from the club, so our eighth member was her nine-year-old daughter Felicity, who had gotten into her mother's stash thinking that it was some sort of candy. Felicity had survived pretty much intact, although it was very creepy when she'd get this faraway look and say, I left a part of me over there forever. Number nine, you know Todd Gardner, software guru? Designed some photo-sharing app that got stolen by Instagram. Sued and settled. Took his billions and started an open-source, give-technology-away-and-take-back-the-internet company that somehow also made him a gazillion dollars. Todd, information is free gardener, giving it all away. The young hippie, there with the two OHs, Dan and Mark, fish fan in the Grateful Dead Sea. Todd, like the rest of us, had tripped and fallen. With the jaded eyes of a 28-year-old, I looked around the room with the marry, fuck, or kill scale in mind. Dan, I wanted to kill. Todd, obviously, kill him too. Mark, I didn't exactly want to marry, but I certainly would have followed him into battle. And fuck? Carol the Speed Freak was Carol the Speed Freak. Crow and Raven thought I was lame, and that was never going to change. So I settled on Dr. Farman, Laura. I settled on her for all three. Fuck for the obvious reason that she was gorgeous. Mary for the obvious reason that she was gorgeous, smart, and funny. And kill for the equally obvious reason that she was gorgeous, smart, funny, and therefore no doubt wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with me. Even as I was mulling over that sad situation, Dr. Farman, Laura, looked right at me, and I had to remind myself that, psychedelically enlightened or not, she could not read minds. I think, she said, that the best way to proceed is for all of us to go back in together and see if we can find her. Her, of course, was the little girl from our vision, and to go back in together was to dose ourselves again with some good old bromo D. Laura knew a lot about drugs. She'd studied at Purdue with David Nichols and was one of the probably half-dozen people in the world who had read both of Shulgin's books as textbooks. Now, she called those and other works of some early psychedelic pioneers. In an obscure paper from a British researcher from the 70s, a man named Bernard Tanninger, she had found what was clearly a reference to an early analog of what we were calling Bromo Dragonfly and the following entry. Took moderate dose, darkness, gray and bleak, time completely out of joint, saw my mother dead ten years, saw my niece still very much alive sitting on her lap. Worst forty-eight hours of my life, never again. Laura told us that he went on to say in a separate entry that his niece died two weeks later in a car accident. There is only one other entry, she said. It's short. I'm destroying formula. But Laura leaned into the wonder of it all. The nine of us, different people, different places, different attitudes, only common denominator, same drug. 
And, as I said in my ad, long haul, gray light, little girl with ball. She let us sit with that for a bit, really appreciate the impossible weirdness of it. And then, rather than harping on how we'd narrowly escaped psychic meltdown, brain explosion, permanent burnout, what she said was, We've all seen her, and I think we all believe that she's in trouble. I propose that we all go back together, and, Dr. Tattinger's warning to the contrary, see if there's anything we can do to help. It was a clusterfuck. The new trip took off right where the last one had left off. Mine opened with the ball rolling to my feet. I was in the corridors. The little girl was running off. There were horrible sounds, laughing, crying, a wailing and gnashing of teeth, as it were. The gray light turned black. I felt lost. I felt alone. Another ball rolled to my feet. That ball was Raven's goth-black dyed hair-covered head. I woke up screaming. So did the others. We were back in the lab where we'd taken the drug and I remember everyone looking around with the same sort of panic. We were all looking for Raven. We all needed to know if it was real. Crow was screaming, which was a first giveaway. She was covered in blood, and Raven's body lay slumped in her lap. Raven's headless body. And Crow was clutching a bloody knife. Yeah, that happened. The police were called. Statements were taken, conclusions drawn. Under the influence of the drug, it seemed, Crow had wandered into the kitchenette, gotten a bread knife from the drawer, and sliced her best friend's head off. The fact that there was no head in evidence was an issue, but the cops theorized that Crow had hidden the head somewhere and then wandered back to sit with the body. A search was initiated. None of us offered up the fact that we'd all seen that head in a hallway in another fucking world. None of us had even mentioned that one to each other yet. The cops shut Laura down, obviously, and they took Crow away. The rest of us were left to find our own way home from Tacoma. I, for one, couldn't get away too soon. I went back to my life, such as it was. I took a job as an Uber driver, although why anyone would get into a car with me driving... I don't know. Didn't they look at my eyes? My hollow, burnt-out, terrified eyes? I followed Crow's arrest and trial online. I read about Carol's OD on Felicity's Facebook page. She was in foster care now and having a really bad time of it. When Todd blew his brains out, it made the Huff Post. Apparently, settling with Instagram for half the money on the planet made a person obit-worthy. Then, Crow got hold of a prison shiv and slit her wrists. That made BuzzFeed. In between a list of ways you could tell if your cat thought you were stupid and a video about things couples hated about each other. I've got one for you. When your significant other reads lists to you. My phone would ring from time to time, but I wouldn't answer it. I would get messages on my Facebook and Twitter, and I'd ignore them. Sure. I put Laura on my fuck, Mary kill list, but that was before the psychedelic shit had hit the fan. Now, she was on my stay-the-fuck-away-from-at-all-costs list. I did not want to talk to her. I wanted to go back to a life where my worst problem was whether or not two tickets to Vampire Weekend was enough to get me laid. 
but that life was a distant memory, and no one was going to let me go back to it. Particularly not Mark and Dan. They came to my apartment in a cloud of weed smoke. I mean, I thought someone had killed a skunk and left the body outside my door. Dan looked lost and paranoid. Mark looked like he was having the time of his life. It's down to us, he said. Dr. Farman's off the grid, Felicity's gone dark, completely stopped posting to her Facebook. And besides, she's just a kid and, you know, the others have all taken the big trip. What it came down to was that Mark and Dan had tracked down the researcher who had written the scary I Destroyed the Formula article that Laura had told us about. The English guy, Bernard Tanninger. Mark thought that he would be the man to see. Something Dr. Farman didn't get to about trickster, he said. He's a trickster. What does that mean? I asked. For one thing, that you never know where he's going to show up. So, you coming with? You're either on the bus or off the bus, I answered, which got a thumbs up and a wink from Mark. I was a young man with roots. We found Tanager in Koreatown in Los Angeles, living in a one-room apartment on Beverly and Western, over a place called Ethical Drugs. You can't do better than real life for that shit. You just can't. Tanager was a total recluse who never went any further than Piper's 24-hour restaurant two doors away from his apartment. He ate all his meals there, eating it off hours to avoid as much contact with the world as possible. We slid into the booth across from him. Mark led the way, all wide-open, groovy smile. What can you tell us about Bromo Dragonfly? he began. Tanninger glared up at him from a black cup of coffee. You people think this is all a great adventure. There's nothing adventurous about staring at your own emptiness. He sounded as if he knew. She will come for you, he said then. And she will take you back there to the bad place. The bad place, he said, is real. We had a couple of rooms at a hotel on Vermont near Sunset. Mark and Dan were sharing, their smoke out continuing, I supposed, as they reminisced about dead concerts and catalogued all that had gone wrong since the summer of love. I had my own room, and with what was going on, I couldn't sleep. It was probably two in the morning when I decided that I needed ice for the shot of Jack I was about to pour myself from the medicinal supply I'd brought, just in case. It was one of those cool L.A. nights with the wind blowing tears into your eyes. The wind blew, and the lights flickered, and I bent to get my ice from the machine when I heard footsteps, someone running, then something rolled to my feet. It was not another severed head, just a ball. But when I picked it up, I wasn't in Los Angeles anymore. I was in the gray, and there in the gray, I could just see her, the little girl, running off down one of the endless corridors. I thought to follow, but the corridor just receded away as I watched the girl disappear. I came out of the gray to find myself in the back of a police car. I was staring down at my hands, and my hands were covered in blood. The car was in the motel parking lot. So was an ambulance. Two bodies were being loaded in, and I didn't need to see the tattooed wrist hanging from one stretcher to know it was Dan and Mark. 
I saw a cop retrieving something from behind the ice machine, a fire axe. Even from where I sat in the back of the car, I could see the blood on the blade and handle. Laura bailed me out the next morning. She'd been my one phone call. Tanninger said she will come for you, she asked, and take you to the bad place, I finished. Do you think he meant the little girl? Who else? She told me some things then, about ancient myths, prophecies, beliefs, tricksters, demonic representation of the collective unconscious. Bottom line, she said, we had linked to something big and scary. We'd let a monster in, and we had to go back in to shut the door we'd opened. We had to. It was a you-broke-it-you-bought-it situation. Of course, when we got back from saving the world, I'd still be facing a double murder charge, and the devil-made-me-do-it argument was going to prove awfully weak, especially if I added that the devil was a little girl. But all of that could wait until we'd save the world. That night, Laura and I made love. Yeah, for true. We went back to her hotel. Our plan was to wait until morning to get someplace safe. She had a friend at UCLA with a lab and head back into the void. I thanked her for getting me a room as well as coming to my rescue, but when I thanked her for getting me the room, she said that she hadn't gotten me a room, that she was hoping I'd stay with her. She didn't want to be alone. I'm going to say this now, even given everything that came after. Even with that, it was the best night of my life. The best sex, the deepest connection, fucking awesome. Check one off the fuck, Mary kill list. Laura was already up when I woke the next morning. She had breakfast waiting, croissants, OJ coffee, and two tabs of Bromo D. She had talked, she said, to her UCLA friend, and it wouldn't be possible for us to use this lab. He hadn't liked the idea of an unauthorized experiment with an illegal drug and a man arrested on a double homicide charge. Imagine. We blessed the place last night, she said. I think we chased away the demons. A half hour later, we were back in the gray. It was different being there together. We held hands as we wandered the hallways. We could hear the sound of the bouncing ball, so that's what we were headed for. That sound, and the sound of the little girl crying. Laura started chanting. I want to say we were about a half hour in, but with this drug it could have been a minute or a week. Anyway, Laura started chanting. She let go of my hand. There, in front of me, but with her back to me, was the little girl. The little girl turned, and the little girl was Felicity. Carol's daughter, and she was crying, she said. Why did you bring her? Now we'll never get out of the bad place. You just heard Les Boham's The Bad Place, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. 
He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Our second story of the night comes from Diane Arbuck. We've heard from her a couple times before in episode 110 and 246. Diane Auerbach is a South African novelist. Her novel Gardening at Night won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers Prize, Best First Book, Africa and the Caribbean, and was shortlisted for the International Dublin IMPAC Award in 2011. Her collection of short stories, Cabin Fever, was published by Random House Struick. Her novel, Home Remedies, was published by Random House Struick in August of 2012. She was shortlisted for the Kane Prize in 2014 and won the Short Story Day Africa competition the same year. She taught at Rustenburg Girls High School until 2002. Before this, she worked as a teacher of history at Cedar House and of narrative and aesthetics at AFDA, the film school, both in Cape Town. Her nonfiction has appeared in The Mail and Guardian. She reviews fiction from the South African Sunday Times. And now, Diane Auerbuck's De Wilke. Lolly them lived in a house and observatory that had started out, possibly, once long ago, as two rooms and an outhouse, along with the others on Station Road. The house had grown as the family had, each new room higher and more precarious, a boastful babel begging for the lightning bolt. They lived there now, the ones who were left, Diel and the brother-uncles and Lolly and Mommy. On her deathbed, Lolly always added confidentially, as if this location was part of her mother's name, the woman had fused with the mattress. The deathbed was useful. Be careful, boy Kay, Lolly said to her brother, her mouth slick with gloss. Be careful. If you aren't nice to people, one day you'll end up like Mommy. Diel wasn't sure that he would mind. It might be quite nice to have some peace and quiet for a change. The room where Mommy lay was almost level with the turrets and domes of the official observatory at the other end of the street, which the whole of Cape Town trusted with its weather predictions. She, like the astronomers and meteorologists, knew everything that happened for miles around, even though no one came to visit her, as if cancer was catching. From her lookout, Mummy terrorised her leftover brothers and children, they cowered when she croaked down the warped stairs. They dreaded the strains of her dusty voice box. They fought amongst themselves at whose turn it was. Diel, the youngest, had the least say. She likes you, Lolly told Diel. You look like Daddy. It was an accusation. It was an excuse. And I'm busy. You go. It's not fair. Why do I have to do everything around here? I'm not your slave. 
On cue, the voice came floating, a poisonous balloon. Mince, one of yous, give me the potty. They could make out what she was saying, even with the damage to her mouth. Speak of the devil, said Lolly, and rolled her eyes. She gave Diel a little push. Go, what are you waiting for? Jesus, don't make her wait. Mommy's voice echoed down to them, mushy, sibilant, irritable. You people are driving me to my grave. If only, whispered Dial, and for once he and Lolly were laughing at the same thing. He fetched the yellow potty from the bathroom and made his way up the stairs, feeling the muscles stretching in the angles of his groin. It would be worse if he didn't get there in time. Mommy was dying. Mommy had always been dying. She lay in state like a paperweight, the heaviness at the top of the stairs. From her bed, she stared through her window, willing the birds to bring her news. Mommy had no use for the world, but still it rotated, visiting her on scaly red legs, bundled in feathers. She knows everything, Lolly told Dial. He heard them, the pigeons and doves, and the little cape white eyes, and once or twice a blurred hummingbird, but they were easily scared, and didn't come back. It was the starlings Mommy trusted, gangsters with gunmetal wings elbowing the other birds from the window. They cocked their slick heads at Mommy, and she cocked hers back, their mouths open and their tongues pointed, grey and dangerous as arrows. It had begun with her tongue, too. I don't understand it, Lolly said, standing in front of the mirror. Cancer of the mouth. Maybe the uncle's, yeah, but her? She angled her head so that the fossil molars were exposed. She peered at her own back teeth, not knowing what to look for, keen in the instant for disease. Dial thought that maybe Mommy had cancer of the mouth because of all the complaining, the skinder she sprayed out with her spittle. Mommy was toxic. Everyone knew. You just stayed on her good side to avoid the spatter. Not like poor Karima from down the road. Poor? Ha! Is she now so high and mighty that she has to go to a what-do-you-call-it salon and get her private parts waxed? I ask you, why can't she just save them and then sit in a cold bath like the rest of us? Bile eats away at you, thought Dial. It must. Bad breath, loose teeth, white patches on the tongue. It was hard to tell what was sickness, what was old age. But that was all before they had cut her tongue out. In the preceding weeks, Mommy had been back and forth along the road to the hospital at Gurukshur. She counted her steps to the blank buildings at the summit its luminous orange windsock streaming out in the southeaster. 
Dial watched from the turret window as she moved, otherwise against the flow of people on their way back to the taxis on Main Road. They hopped on crutches, wore babies strapped on their backs, stopped to cough into their fists. Dial could not believe that she was one of them. He wondered if, when she came down the hill again in reverse, the sick people at the bottom who hadn't begun the ascent were looking at her and thinking, Look at that weak old lady. I wonder how she's doing. And then they would think, I never thought it would happen to me. Mommy had two operations. She never saw the doctor who cut off the end of her tongue once and then again. But Dial saw him from where he stood behind Lolly. There was no consultation room. The surgeon had spoken to them in the passage while people sat waiting on wooden benches, their eyes fastened like buttons to the near-death whiteness of his coat. Both times, Mommy was asleep while the surgeon sliced into her, dreaming of her Ronald when they were fifteen, Ronald and his secret toothy kisses red on her flesh. When she came to, the sides of her mouth were split, as if someone had taken a scalpel to all her corners. Maybe they had. For the first time in her life, Mommy looked as if she was smiling at Diel. Back home after the second surgery, he helped her up to her room. He waited for the same measured steps she had used to climb the steep slope to the hospital, back when she was intact. When he left, he imagined Mommy taking off her clothes for the last time, dropping her hard brown shoes one by one on the uneven floorboards. She would pull her thin nighty down over her head. She would open the curtains so that the birds could see in and she could see out. She would ease into bed and lie on her left, the nightmare side, and the house would excuse Mommy from any more fasting or prayer. She lay immune to both Ides and Christmas and everything after that. Mommy, mute, shriveled, but the sickness bloomed. Composted with marrow, the cancer sprouted in her bones. It grew in a thick hedge on her perimeter. Its bruised flowers twined around each bowering rib. They climbed the hollow column of her spine like the morning glory under the window. One afternoon, when she turned over in her red dream of Ronald, she broke two of her overgrown ribs. Like that, Lolly said softly, clicking her fingers so that they snapped in the stillness. Just like that. For the first few days, Diel kept waiting for the voice that didn't come, hungry and subtracted. The house's dusty rooms groaned under the weight of suffering. The ghost tongue was still there, licking at the windows, propping open doors. He wanted to look inside Mommy's mouth, but he didn't know how to ask. Did she have stitches? Would the tip grow back like a tail on a gecko? He didn't speak. 
and so she lived on in the endless dim kingdom of disease. The rules were different there. Slowly the words returned. Mommy slurred, lapping and slapping at Diel's ear. She sounded like the brother-uncles. The tongue poked, fruitless at the conversational root. Sometimes she cried out that her hands and feet were on fire and that the morphine didn't help. She slept and slept in trance during the day and then had to stay up all night. The birds were gone to their precarious nests. Dial crept in sometimes and stared at her in hibernation, testing himself. Mommy was never going to die, he decided. She was hanging on. She would just get smaller and smaller until one day he would come in and find a clump of hair, a fingernail, a shower of dust in the air that would make him cough. She would be part of the house forever. Day after day, when the metamorphosis didn't happen and Diel saw the same shape under the sheets, he went back down the uneven stairs again, disappointed and relieved. Now he stood as close to the bed as he dared, holding the potty by its hard yellow handle. He watched Mommy in her pain-killing doze, her bladder forgotten. The nylon of her nightie had been pulled sideways by her dreaming fingers, so that the old port from her drip was exposed like an extra throat. Diel imagined her unscrewing the cap on herself and pouring in oil like a mechanic. He pictured her insides strung together with biltong and sinew, her heart shrunken and pale as a ginger root. He had fitted inside that body once upon a time. He and Lolly, they both had imagine. And then he thought, I could smother her. I could just do it. Put the pillow over her face and stop the misery and the drool. Outside, a sudden starling beat against the glass, its wings bending backwards under its weight. Mommy started and shrieked and clutched at her naked port, and Diel dropped the potty. It bounced and rolled under the bed, like a sunset, until its handle stopped the ark, out of reach, once and for all. Mommy peered up into Diel's face. She didn't recognise him, and then she did. Oh, Jesus! she exclaimed through the slit of her lips. Dial expected puffs of dust. There were motes swirling above the bed in the green light from the window. I thought now this was the end. No man, Mommy, Dial said, then added nonsensically, it's just me. He touched the tip of his whole tongue to the corners of his mouth, nervous as a lizard. Mommy slid her eyes sideways at him, and he suddenly knew what she must have looked like when she was as young as he was, with a sticky pink mouth and tar-black hair 
its tendrils wrapped around his father's fingers. Then she bleached back into the ancient lady in her nighty, a fibrous banknote in a captured country. Mommy lifted her arm and pointed at Dial, shaking. He expected to hear the matchbox rattle of her bones. Yoni! She couldn't say the R anymore. Yoni. Dial's heart tickered in his chest, the same panic that his father had brought with him into a room. He put out his hand to her and then took it back again. He didn't want her to touch him. She would never let him go. No, Mommy, it's me, Dial. Mommy sighed and closed her eyes. Dial watched the balls roll under the flickering lids. Yon, Yoni. Everything she said was a groan. He wanted to leave. He wanted to stay. He gave up. Yes, I'm here. He searched for her old name. Viola, V. She kept her eyes closed. Give me a kish. Hey, kish, kish me. Dial imagined the stump of her tongue straining at the sides, trying to touch the roof of her mouth. The vermelt, they sometimes called it, as if the ridges were a red vault over the wet earth. Maybe Mommy held a planet in her mouth, like a ping pong ball. It didn't matter, really, who it was. They were all family, as Lolly often told Dial. He could kiss Mommy. How many thousands of times had he kissed her goodnight and sleep tight and see you in the morning? And she would stop asking and fall back asleep. She would forget about the potty. Next time it would be someone else's turn and Dial would be free. He leaned forward and smelled her burned-out scent, powdery as perished rubber, the terrible sweetness that was left after pheromones faded. She smelled nothing like the rest of the living relatives waiting downstairs, the brother-uncles hiding their courts of black label, Lolly with her lip-gloss pouting at her reflection. So Dial kissed Mommy on the mouth where a line of chapped skin caught at him like a callus. For a moment he imagined the two of them, pressed against each other forever, merged. Then her jaws opened as if on a spring. Her tongue slithered over his lips. Dial leaped back, spluttering. He wiped his mouth hard on his sleeve. Sisman, Mommy! He stared at her his lips numb and his shoulder blades pressing against the cupboard. Her head lolled on the pillow, and she huffed, a patched cat with a cough. Dial could not be sure if she was laughing or crying. There was no moisture left in her, but her mouth was wide open at last. The tongue that flickered back at him was forked, two short muscles that wriggled, questing, 
slick, independent. Dael yelped and fell back against the cupboard again, jarring his elbow. He struggled up and fought back down the narrow staircase, one ankle twisting like his school compass. He was nearly safe. He was so close. Lolly's frowning face turned to him as he clattered down the steps two at a time, and his tongue began to tingle. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That was Diane Auerbuck's Day Will K as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan is an award-winning short fiction author, editor, and podcast narrator, recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent in 2014. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in numerous venues around the world, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, and The Mammoth Book of Dieselpunk. His vocal talents have been heard on such podcasts as Starship Sofa, right here at Tales to Terrify, Plan B, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the anthology's Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, winner of the 2014 SJV for Best Collected Work and the 2014 Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work and At the Edge in 2016, a collection of Antipodian dark fiction. In 2017, Hounds of the Underworld Book 1 and the crime-slash-horror series The Path of Ra, co-written with Lee Murray, will be released by Raw Dog Screaming Press. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Our third and final story for the evening comes from Brendan Wilhelm. 
Brendan has published horror stories in both print and online, including ShortStory.me, Microhorror, The Dead Walk Volume 2, and Devolution Z. He is a native New Yorker and lives there currently with his family. And now, Brendan Wilhelm's The Traeger Technique. Scene, said Carly, knowing that Barb didn't like it when pupils ended their scenes and monologues that way. For life should always continue past the words of the playwright. But since Carly was also the playwright, she took her chances. Carly instead got a smile from the 71-year-old Barb, clad in her tunic, her gray hair a small beehive shape. Talk to me, dear, she said. Carly sat at a decrepit prop table in front of the class of 15 wannabe thespians. Her monologue was from her untitled one-woman show, the one she hoped would see a stage before she exited her 20s, which wasn't too far in the future. In the monologue, the character Grace Hewley gives her domineering, abusive husband Zack a verbal divorce. Felt okay. I felt connected. Barb loved that word. To who? said Barb, always telling it like it was. To the material. This piece is to the husband, no? Just trying to workshop the whole one-woman show thing. Barb leaned forward, looking almost grandmotherly. Every monologue is a scene, right? You need a man, added Barb. The group laughed. If I had a nickel, said Carly. Barb continued, it would help you to have a person there to react to, to work off of. Without it, you're self-conscious. You present yourself. You get Here's that hideous word, theatrical. She turned to the amused class. And one thing we don't do here is theater. It's dreck. Ugh. More laughs. She turned back to Carly. Pick a lad to work with and bring the piece back next week. Only a few students remained after class. Barb was off to catch a cab and the snobs from the 830 Hamlet workshop were beginning to trickle into the room. Carly checked her phone, always in the hope that someone had seen her headshot, hopefully someone other than an NYU film undergrad, looking to cast her as either a goofy librarian or pregnant hooker. Hey, said the newcomer, surprising Carly. He was a few years older with a boyish face. He smiled coyly as he slipped on his backpack. Julian Traeger. Carly Ellen Lamont. Carly for short, she joked. He smiled, one of acknowledgement rather than amusement. Loved your work today. Still need a scene partner? If you're okay just listening to moi, yes. <laughs> I was going to say I'm out in Queens and have plenty of rehearsal space if that's easier. A bit of a trick, but you're more than welcome. I have a closet with four walls in the West Village. <laughs> you're more than welcome. His laugh was controlled, almost self-censored. <laughs> Cool, I'll call you with the time. On Thursday, Carly headed out to Julian's to rehearse. It was indeed a trek on the F train. The F stood for forever, as New Yorkers knew. Carly used the time to reflect on Grace. Not in any deep way. Becoming a character was not in her acting creed. 
But there was such a thing in her technique, a dreck word, as Barb would say, as getting into a state of awareness. Julian's place was the first floor of a pretty detached home on a quiet street in Forest Hills, which felt more like her native suburban Connecticut than the crowded boroughs of Queens. Julian greeted her with a smile at the door. He wore a tank top, jeans, and sports socks. His bare arms were attractive, not large, but toned. Hey, hey, come on in, he said, seeming more chipper and less formal than he had in class. The apartment was pristine and cozy. The small living area and kitchen, complete with bar stools, gave way to a tiny hallway with graphic art on the wall. Some funky patterns along with some logos for companies that Carly never heard of. Two closed doors were at the other end of the apartment. A plus one bedroom for sure. Carly slipped off her flip-flops. Awesome! There is no other word. Except maybe, wow. Yeah, been here a year, just renewed for two. Graphic design has treated me well. If it ever falls through, I can hook you up as a waitress, she said. He forced a laugh. You solo here? That I am. Old couple lives upstairs, and don't worry about volume. I had this place soundproofed. There were indeed foam acoustic panels spaced out on the ceiling, weaved in rather nicely with a white tiling, and a thin layer of fabric along the walls. Ask anyone who knows me, volume is not one of my concerns, she said. This one got a crooked smile. Already? I'm a believer in just getting to it and seeing where it goes he said, plopping down on the sofa that looked brand new. She sat cross-legged beside him. A man of my heart. Cold read? Those are usually the best ones. Carly sipped from her water bottle before starting. The setting is the living room of the Hewleys. She recited it from memory while looking Julian in the eye. I'm keeping the necklace. With it, I can still dream of the little girl we would have had. Laurel. She'd be more you than me. A curious child. A daddy's girl. And the two of you would have been all I'd need. With the necklace, I can still have you. The Zack I belonged to. Who made me whole. Whose love weighed me down. Wouldn't let me sleep. Made me want to shout before the storm. I'm keeping it because you're still the love of my life. Despite what you've turned into. I'll move on. I'll live, maybe even to an old age. But there won't be another love. You gave him to me and took him away. And now you've driven a ghost out of here. A widow. With nothing but this necklace. Julian was stoic. As usual, Barb was right. His mere presence was helping her. Carly stood and paced the room. Feel free to mix it up, she said. And I'm not directing. Didn't take it that way, he said as he stood and stretched his long arms, looking like he was about to sprint rather than act. Okay, then, Carly snapped her fingers. I'm keeping the necklace. Carly touched her titanium Celtic necklace, the one she'd gotten from her one and only showmance with the clingy Adam, with whom she'd done the matchmaker at an upstate community theater. As she spoke, Julian simply stood before her, arms folded and stared into her eyes. 
And with the necklace, I can still have you. The Zack I belong to. Who made me whole. Whose love weighed me down. Wouldn't let... Julian approached her and gently took her arm, distracting her from the text. He started a slow box step with her, something he'd apparently done before. Impressed by his choice, charmed by his ability, she let out a small, quiet laugh to herself. He then stepped behind her fluidly and continued to lead from there. In that moment, she was embarrassed to find herself wanting to fall asleep in his arms. Wouldn't let me sleep. Made me want to shout. Before the storm. His arms tightened around her waist. She gasped as he lifted her off the floor and threw her to the couch, all in one motion. She landed on her butt on the middle cushion and let out an awkward squeal. He pressed his hands against her shoulders, pinning her down. Quiet, he said, his own voice disturbingly so. She tried to let out a no that became nothing but an ugly yelp. He tried to press his hand over her mouth, but she thrashed her head to avoid it. He pressed harder against her shoulders. You're not going anywhere, he whispered in a voice that sounded nothing like his own. Get the fuck off, she screamed in her most powerful and projectile voice. Julian backed away, looking confused. She tried to catch her breath as she stood on rubbery legs. She stumbled backward away from him, almost falling to the floor. You okay? He asked, his hands were up, a half smile on his face, almost telling her that she was the crazy one. No, she shouted, her breath escaping her. He stood still, waiting for her to continue. Are you crazy? Jesus Christ, what is that? Look, I'm here to rehearse. I'm sorry if it rubbed you the wrong way, he said with an indifference that was infuriating. You assaulted me, she shouted back. He took a moment, looking at the floor, hands on his hips. Here comes the apology. This scene is smoking now. What? A few minutes ago, we were two scene partners playing around. Not a whiff of realism or naturalism. Now there's some juice. I feel like Zack and Grace now. A terrified wife and a domineering... No, I don't do this. I don't. No. She stomped over to her purse, still rattled from the experience. I don't feel like explaining. Come on, from the top, he said, sounding like she was being irrational. I'm going. She slipped on her flip-flops, not looking at him. We can still do the scene on Tuesday, she said, not meaning it. She heard the metallic squeak of the door latch. She looked up to see him by the door, hands in his pockets. He grinned. I'm going now was all she could think to say. She expected another plea to stay and finish the rehearsal. What would Grace do, he asked instead. What? she said with disgust. He leaned against the kitchen bar. She walked to the door and tried to flip the bolt. It wouldn't budge. Julian, open this door now. What would Grace do? You know what she'd do? She'd call the cops. Not a hint of nervousness from him. And tell them what? We rehearsed a scene that you wrote? Seriously? 
Do not go there with me. What would Grace do? She pulled out her phone, waiting for him to beg her not to. Carly, I cower trying to act next to you. Barb has reason to love you as much as she does. You are so goddamn talented. But this scene could be so much better. Julian, listen. Don't sound like you're pleading. I understand you probably didn't mean to go overboard. But I did. Her eye caught the large Santoku knife he now held in his hand. She knew the knife well from the restaurant. It was the kind that could cut almost anything with little effort. Call it the trigger technique, he said with a smile. Like Barb, I think it's all about the life. Acting is an illusion. Actors don't act. They live. Her mind ran through the scenario of dialing 911. She could already be stabbed and disposed of before the dispatcher ever got to ma'am relax. He continued, I believe in going all out, especially in a scene like this. You expect me to play an abusive person? How the hell do I know what that feels like? Don't look at the knife. You're scaring me, Julian. I just can't work this way. That's perfect. Carly, this is working then. Grace is rattled. Her life is anxiety and not knowing what this guy would do next. The guy who was supposed to protect her. I understand what you're saying, but I'm sorry the knife is just making me really uncomfortable. Can you put it away? <laughs> it's working, he said with a laugh. We're scratching the surface here. He took a step closer and Carly backed away. As he noticed this, Julian's smile faded into an unpleasant glare. Now we're getting somewhere, he said. The second he inched closer, Carly bolted toward the back of the apartment. It might be her last mistake, but he was too close to the front door. She could feel him leap after her. No, Jewel, please, no. She passed the closed doors and turned toward him, backing away along the wall of graphic art. Stop, stop it, please. He had stopped running and now simply walked toward her, knife poised for use. The posture seemed comfortable and natural to him. This must have been a common occurrence for Zack and Grace, he said. Before she knew what she'd done, she was in a tiny bathroom. She slammed the door shut, turning the small latch to the vertical position. She clutched the edge of the sparkling clean sink, expecting the knife blade to ram through the door any second. This scene's red hot now, his voice boomed through the door. We're living it, Carly, we're living it. She heard him prance into the other room. A loud crash ensued, the sound of the table being knocked over or thrust against the wall. He then pounded on something, a groan accompanying each loud thud. She dropped her purse somewhere during her short run, along with her phone. She looked at herself in the mirror and saw tears of stress on her cheeks. More furniture was being pummeled, pushed, and overturned in the other room. He was muttering something to himself. Should she scream until someone heard? I had the place soundproofed. If the old couple upstairs or the neighbors knew he was an actor, 
Any screams they did hear would be shrugged off. She could see her body shaking as she sat on the soft bath mat. She needed to save all of the energy she could. At some point, she'd have to face a threat that outweighed her by about 20 pounds and was revving up his ability to inflict pain in the other room. Grace, he yelled. Don't you ever mouth off to me. Glass broke, punctuating his command. He spoke words she couldn't hear and giggled to himself. He panted, sighed, and rattled a few glasses and utensils. Overall, he seemed to quiet down. Time passed. She didn't have the mental energy to guess how much, and Carly no longer wore a watch. It irked her to watch other actors in character with untanned spots on their wrists. The sun had probably set. She had off from the restaurant tonight, so Elvin, her boss, wouldn't be calling her phone, which Julian had probably turned off or smashed anyway. Unless she was getting a call about an audition, no one was looking for her. Loneliness was the ironic reality for many actors. Carly's stomach ached from hunger as much as tension. She stood and took a sip of cool water from the bathroom sink, keeping the water flow low and quiet. He spoke through the bathroom door without warning. Sweet. Carly screamed, with no chance to filter it. His lips must have been pressed to the door, his voice sounding hoarse. This is the jolt of champagne that the scene needed. Don't you feel the same way? Hearing his voice without seeing him was like feeling a water bug on her neck. She heard him sit with a thud on the hallway carpet and lean against the door. I know you get it, Carly. A lot of them don't understand that it's the passion, too. You gotta suffer with the character. They just want the attention. The bubblegum. I've worked with them. That's pretty much all I've worked with. The pretty faces. But you get it. It's the process. Who cares if it never gets seen? Do it right. Put yourself out there. That's what I told my buddy Raph. We did a scene together. It was a complete power struggle. Chock full of juicy conflict. <laughs> he just wanted to act acting, as Doug Woodley would say. Doug was my mentor. Julian cleared his throat with a single cough that startled her. So we did some improv. I made him improv. And it was great. We were acting from the heart. Our struggle was the character struggle. We even started slugging each other. And then down Raph goes and, well, it was for a good cause. She heard his plastic water bottle crinkle as he took a sip. And this one girl, Ginger, oh my God. She was supposed to slap me in this one scene. It's like she wanted to do a stage slap. How am I supposed to react to that? So I had to make her want to hit me. And oh Christ, did she ever, after what I, oh. Anyway, you get it. Don't take this the wrong way. But I love you. You're like my friggin' acting soulmate. Silence. Carly started to ponder not living through this. If Raph and Ginger were taxidermied and propped up in the cellar, she might be joining them. I'm out here when you're ready. He gave a wet and unpleasant sniff before trouncing away. She started to cry but stopped herself. If she refused to open the door, he might force his way in. 
She would do what actors do, go out and take a risk, and hope he wasn't still holding the knife. She turned the latch and opened the bathroom door. The dim light in the living area would have better suited a funeral parlor. Julian sat at the table. Along with the chairs, it was the only standing piece of furniture. The knife sat beside him. His tank top was sweaty and stretched out, looking two sizes bigger. The couch was flipped over and gutted. There were fist-sized holes in the art-covered wall. The floor was littered with magazines, garbage, and the contents of Carly's purse. Welcome to the Hewleys. From the top? he asked. The front door was still off limits. He was too close, armed, and the bolt was still a problem. She would have to play along. Carly sat across from him. I'm keeping the necklace, she started, never feeling more vocally unsteady. With it, I can dream of the girl we would have had, Laurel. The child who'd be me, more you than me. His arms were at his side, out of her sight, but still able to grab the knife. The boy who made me in love. He wept, a true unforced cry the kind that even great actors wish they could summon up at will, despite Barb's scoffs that tears are just wet eyes. She continued, You gave him to me and took him away. He rose slowly from his chair. Rather than run screaming, she defied her gut and stayed put. A widow. A ghost. She continued. He knelt in front of her, placing his cheek to her knee his hands gently on her thigh. You leave, and you've committed murder, he said, his nose and lips wet with tears. Please, Grace. With no forethought, Carly removed her necklace and placed it into his hands. To remember me, she said softly. She kissed his forehead. Julian remained still. Carly stroked his hair as she stood. He didn't stop her. Instead, he stayed on his knees, staring ahead and beyond to some distant, maniacal place. Carly headed for the door, not even looking for her phone. She struggled to flip the bolt. It started to give. She turned to make sure he wasn't behind her. He was. His sweaty hand grabbed her throat, reaching almost completely around her neck. More tears appeared on his red, angry face, which seemed to stare past her. The lack of air became worse than the pain. She swatted at him with tired arms and tried without luck to get her fingers in his eyes, a trick that she learned in the free self-defense class at the actors' club. Their bodies were too close for a kick. You're staying, he said through clenched teeth. There seemed to be little left of the awkward actor with the crooked smile. Instead, the puffy, teary face of something stared down at her. Perhaps the face of Zack himself. The last thing she'd ever see. Out in a quiet house in Forest Hills, where he just might spend the next hour rehearsing with her corpse. Scene, he said, releasing Carly's throat and letting her fall to the carpet. She clamored for a full breath as he leaned with complete ease against the front door. Awesome sauce.
he said, taking a sip from his water bottle. Carly tried to force cries through her throat to breathe. As Doug would say, Julian put on a fake underbite in comical voice. Surrender to the scene and be fully naked and free on stage. I tell you it will make you walk out of here feeling ten feet tall. He laughed. <laughs> and I feel ten feet tall. Shit, you even got JT to cry. He laughed again, wiping his eyes. <laughs> you okay down there? He offered his hand, the one that had almost crushed her larynx. The technique ain't pretty, but it works. Because let's face it, our lives are about the work. He yanked her up by the arm as she tried not to faint. Let's run through it again, I have an idea. He scooped her up into his arms and carried her away from the front door as she tried to process what was happening. I think Grace spent lots of time in the cellar. Sometimes by choice, sometimes not. Let's explore that. By the way, I know you have nowhere to be tonight. I called your restaurant. You're off Thursdays. He spoke the last sentence in a whisper. As he passed the table, Carly spotted the one thing that was better than air in that moment. The Santoku knife sitting there like a mirage. Julian didn't notice as her dangling arm grabbed it by the handle. Luckily, I have cellar access, he said as they approached a door that blended in with the art-covered wall, a door she would never have seen. Kinda gross down there, but that's the point. He reached for the knob while holding her. And because we act alike, I thought we could experiment with... Carly didn't hear the rest of his idea because she buried the knife into his shoulder. The penetration let off the ugliest sound she'd ever heard and it made her feel great. For a guy both tough and insane, his scream was humbling, shrill. He dropped her immediately. The drop sent pain into her shoulder as it met the carpet. Julian looked at his new wound, almost checking that it was real. Carly rose and pulled the cellar door open. He grasped at the doorway to maintain his balance. He glared at her as he tried to cope with the pain. You didn't call scene, he said with little ease, his face redder. She could have said scene as she shoved him into the cellar, but in life, as in acting, Carly aimed not to go for the easy choices. She slammed the door behind him as she heard his body crash down into the darkness. There was no lock on the door. Time passed. Carly sat on the floor with her back against the table. Legs stretched out on the soft carpet. Julian's blood was on her tea and jeans. From the cellar, she heard no groaning sound. No footsteps or shuffling. Either his neck was broken or his voice would emanate from the darkness at any second. She hadn't looked for the phone yet or thought about what to tell the police. She was too busy thinking about Raph and Ginger. They could be dead or missing. Worse, they could be living and willing disciples of the Traeger technique. She should probably grab a weapon in case he emerged from the cellar for another from the top. Or she should prop a chair against the cellar door or just split. But she was just too damn tired. Her confused mind pictured herself returning to class on Tuesday to find Julian sitting at the prop table, 
ready to perform, gash in his shoulder, crooked smile, and insane eyes. She shouldn't wait too long to call the cops. The burden was on the living. She mustered the strength to stand, feeling like a ton. She pictured Barb sitting in the corner of the apartment, tunic and all. Talk to me, how do you feel? Asked the imaginary Barb, slipping on her specs. Like shit, said Carly. This made her chuckle, and her throat sting. Pain stirred in her shoulder. She stumbled to the front door and once again tried to open the bolt. Bad grace, whispered Julian from somewhere in the darkness. That was Brendan Wilhelm's The Traeger Technique as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and right here at Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at NicoleDoolin.com, and of course, her link will be in our show notes. Nicole, as always, thank you. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found this podcast. Our show was produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 